Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world. I know that in the Northern Hemisphere, it's warming up. A lot of my friends in the U.S. have been out enjoying the sun, and I hope that you are. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are. To the listeners in India, I do hope that you're safe and well with what's been going on with uh, the ongoing COVID surge. And uh, I do very, very much feel for you, and I hope that you and your loved ones have gotten through this time okay. Now, the music for this episode is obviously a bit different. Something where you would be saying, okay, JT, well, what's that all about? Well, last week we talked about the Scandinavian ghost rocket sightings in 1946 and leading on up until 1948-1949. Well, this week I'm releasing the first of uh, two parts of an interview that I did with an amazing guest, someone who I've looked up to for a long time, does an excellent program called Forum Borealis out of Norway. So that's where this song comes from. And Al is an excellent host. He does a long-form program. And he's definitely one of the programs that I admired before I started my journey. And Al was so kind to come on the show with me several months ago. And unfortunately, it's been one of those things. I just haven't got the episode edited and out there. But um, it's out there now for you. And I thought, what better timing than to release it right after I do the Scandinavian Ghost Rockets. Now, usually, I would do this all in one chunk, but I've got a few reasons why I split it. So, Al, if you're listening, and I know that uh, I've been having some listens from Norway, so you may very well hear this episode. Al, I do apologize for splitting it in half, but first off, there is some news that I wanted to cover over in the News of the Damn segment. And unfortunately, with my podcast provider, if you upload files that are too large, it'll it, there is an upload limit. And I understand their reason behind it. And their reason is that Apple limits the file size that it will let you have on Apple Podcasts. And the reason is because many people download these files on their data. And there is a limit of, it's only 150 megabytes. So if you have large files, like I often do, over two hours, three hours sometimes, once you get down to a certain level, it just starts getting, the, the quality is not where I'd like. So because with the news of the dam included in this, it will be a significantly long episode. And secondly, honestly, folks, this week, I've not been feeling well the last few days, and I didn't want to delay the episode by a day by having to go through and finish everything else up as well. But that's okay, because you're going to get two episodes with Al. And Al, like I say, Al is definitely an amazing host. I really appreciate and respect Al. He gave me a lot of advice for the program as well, and lots of very kind words of encouragement. So Al, thank you so much. And I always enjoy listening to Al, and uh, how he starts off every episode, which is Greetings from the North. So, yeah, folks, uh, there will be a link in the show notes, but this stuff, and especially when you start talking about really things like the esoteric, um, like I say, the Fourth Reich, the potential that the Nazis survived World War II, not all of them, but some of them in the hierarchy, 
and that at least the structure of the Nazi party survived, which is something that I am a firm believer in. Al has got some excellent guests on Forum Borealis over the years. You can find it on YouTube, but you can also find the website. And again, there are links to both in the show notes. So aside from that, folks, uh, I have been catching up with some stuff this week. I watched a few videos on YouTube about cryptids and some unexplained things. And I actually learned some things. I learned, uh, heard about some different cases that I'd never heard of. And like I say, that's pretty rare when it comes to me uh, to hear about kind of new and different things. Um, I heard some excellent time slip stories that I hadn't heard before. And uh, yeah, really, it's always good because it always stokes my hunger to learn more about these things that I cover over. And like I say, folks, as much as you learn from these episodes, I learn just as much when I go and investigate these cases. And uh, yeah, it's always excellent for me. I really enjoy doing it, and I really appreciate your support and everything you do to help me out. Now, on that note, also to the supporters of the show, the financial contributors, the legends, as I like to call them, I've got a new episode ready to be released, and you'll be getting your links soon. So, yep, what I've been doing lately, folks, is that I've been reading a book a couple chapters at a time to the legends, the people who have contributed financially, not just with their thoughts and... um, appreciation, which of course I do appreciate, and I thank each and every one of my listeners, but to the people who've actually contributed and helped me fund the program, again, I couldn't do it without you, and I really do appreciate it, and I'll have a new episode up. You'll have your next couple of chapters up here uh, probably tomorrow. I get this show out and released, and then I'll move on to that. I've got some other moving pieces in the background, folks, some things I really don't want to go into depth about, but There's one really excellent surprise that you'll find out about with any luck by the end of June. You'll know about it and it will be out there for you to digest. Sorry to be cloak and dagger, but it is just something that's, um, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's a new idea as far as I've never heard of anyone actually doing what we're going to do on the program. And I don't want to divulge it out there until it's in the bag, so to speak. And it's, ready and I can release it. But to those who have been helping in the background, especially to Scott, Matt, and Dave over at the old 77, thank you guys for your help in this. I couldn't do it without you. And I really, really do appreciate it. And to everyone else, like I say, my listeners all around the world, everywhere, the US, India, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Czech, Czech Republic, France, UK, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Colombia, Ghana, Nigeria, just on and on and on. South Africa, China, Japan, Russia, just all of you all over the world. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I couldn't do it without you. And you really do give me the fuel to keep going and keep doing what I enjoy so much. And it's great to know that you find value in it. And of course, like I say, as always, there are some of you who are there all the time supporting me, and I really do appreciate what you do, and I appreciate your kind words. It's just like uh, everyone. I mean, most days I'm pretty settled, but there is that old saying that always be kind with people because we never know what personal battles we're each going through. And sometimes just you're feeling a bit down and somebody gives you a kind word, 
and says something like they appreciate all the hard work that I do for the program, things like that. And it does mean a lot. So thank you from the bottom of my heart to each and every one of you. And also a special shout out to Adriana and Nico in Texas. Thank you so much for the care package you sent my way. It's uh, really brightened my day. Of course, you already know that. And Adriana and Nico sent me an excellent book that I'll be reading in the legendary episodes. Now, if you are curious, if you want to know where you can find those legendary episodes, well, if you contribute, if you follow the show on Patreon, I'll send you a link to these episodes. Now, again, I've said it time and time again, and folks, I do apologize, but the day is only 24 hours long at the end of it. And unfortunately, I just haven't had a chance to get that Patreon revamped. Sooner or later, I'll do it. Either I'll do it or I'll hire someone to do it. But um, yeah, sorry that it's not been sorted out properly yet. Uh, basically, what do I need to do? Well, I need to lay out what you get at what tier value and all of that. And it's just something that with all the other things I've been juggling, it's not been top of the pops. I didn't want to take a week off from the show or anything like that to revamp the Patreon. So I've just continued doing this, doing the programs, putting it out there. Maybe between season three and four, I will. We'll see. I don't even know yet how long of a break we'll have, but we'll just see. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. But we are up now to, this is the 13th episode of season season three. So we are moving with great speed through this season. And again, thank you, each and every one of you, because when I started this, I wasn't sure how long I was going to do it. And all of your kind words and support have allowed me to just keep right on trucking. And like I say, I've learned a lot, and hopefully you have as well. I've also caught up a bit on the Paranormal Caught on Tape uh, program. I've got several of those recorded. I think the last time I checked my DVR or whatever you want to call it, I think I had 27 episodes to watch. So, yeah, it's, it's um, quite a bit to go through there. But it's good because I see different things, different cryptids, different UFO sightings. And it is quite good, even if it's six months out of date or whatever it is. It's really good to catch up on some of those old things, because then I'll go and investigate it on the internet. So if you want to follow the show more, if you want to go and check out different places and different things where the show is on Instagram and Facebook and the website. And like I say, if you want to support the show financially, you want to contribute, you can find all of that in one of two places. You can go in the show notes for this episode, and at the very top there is a link there that says follow and support the program here, and the also underneath I have put the, the web actual webpage link so you can copy and paste because my understanding is that Apple is not very good with allowing you to click on links, so that way you can copy and paste it if you need to. The other way, the easier way probably, if you've got Instagram, go and find the underscore paranormal underscore sun on Instagram. You should find me there. And if you go in the profile there, there is that same link. And you can go and check out anything you really want to. I think the only thing I don't have on there is the TikTok uh, link. And the truth is, I haven't updated that TikTok in quite a while. Uh, or the YouTube for that matter, but again... 24 hours in a day, and even with burning the candle at both ends, I've only got so many hours, so 
I'd rather be putting out this content and doing the research and everything else than updating some of those sites. And again, when the day comes that I've got to go back to the rat race, unless a sack of money ends up in my lap, I'll probably hire someone to kind of tidy up some of that stuff and almost like a social media type manager, try and get that tidied up. So if if that's something that sounds appealing to you, hey, get in touch with me because, um, yeah, I, there will become a point in time where I've got to get someone to do it. So if it, that sounds like something that's interesting to you, get in touch. Now, another thing you'll find there on that link page is I've set up a calendar for bookings for the program. So if you want to be on the Paranormal Sun or you've got a guest that you would like to suggest, and also if you would like me to be on your program. Now, I don't have a way to tentatively accept those bookings. So I'm only ever going to do at the most two interviews or people being on my program on any given day. So if there's more than that, folks, I will be in touch with you and I will tell you, sorry, but I can't do more than five or six hours at a go because even my voice gets blown out. Now, I recently had an interview that was five hours with a guest that's going to be on in the future, and it was an amazing interview, and I absolutely loved it, but I felt bad at the end of the day that I probably blew her voice out a bit, so I do apologize. You know who you are if you're out there listening. So with that being said, folks, like I say, we will be getting into Al and I's conversation, and like I say, just an astounding conversation with Al from Forum Borealis. And once we get through the news of the damned, I'll give you a bit more of an update about Al and about Forum Borealis and where you can find it and why it's such an important venue and a program that I've really enjoyed. But first, we are going to get into the news of the damned for this episode. Now, if you're new to the program or... There was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort gathered a lot of information about these things that we enjoy, things like cryptids and sea monsters and ghost ships and strange things falling from the sky. And Charles Fort collected these articles from newspapers and magazines all around the world, and he gathered them onto cards, and he saved them, and then he released them later in several books with some of his own interpretation and thoughts on these matters. So he would have a section about lights in the sky that people had seen, and then maybe some of his theories about why and how, but always with him asking questions about it and trying to fire our imaginations to ask ourselves what could have it been. Well, Charles Fort talked about anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damn data. So if it were the things that science just conveniently didn't want to talk about, that's what Charles Fort called damn data. And so every time we have a new segment on the Paranormal Sun, as an homage to Charles Fort, it is called The News of the Damned. So as always with the news of the damned, you can find links to all of these articles in the show notes. So if you'd like to go over there and check out the articles for yourself from the source, 
then that way you can. Now, the first one that we've got here is one of the ones that I discussed a little bit in the update that I put out heading into the weekend. And this one is from coasttocoastam.com, and this one is titled, Watch, Obama Offers Serious Take on Puzzling Nature of Navy UFO Encounters. In an intriguing turn of events, former President Barack Obama recently talked about the UFO phenomena during an interview, and differing starkly from similar instances in the past, offered a serious assessment of the situation. The interesting exchange, which can be seen here, and there's a video in this webpage, that's why I always have the link, so you can go and check out the video, occurred this last Monday night when he appeared on The Late Late Show with James Corden. During the segment, band leader Reggie Watts asked him about the simmering story surrounding Navy pilots spotting unidentified aerial phenomena and undoubtedly echoing the thoughts of so many people who have been following these latest events, how it might be connected to aliens. Responding to the extraterrestrial aspect of Watts' question, Obama initially made the obvious joke that there's some things I just can't tell you on air. He then said that upon taking office, he had actually asked if there was a lab somewhere where we're keeping the alien specimens and spaceship. Oh, funny, funny, funny. And he was told that that was not the case. The anecdote elicited laughs from the hosts in the audience, of course, yeah, because, you know, it's let's make fun of it. But then the former president's demeanor changed, and he said, but what is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there is footage and records of objects in the sky that we don't exactly know what they are. Regarding these UAPs, he said, we can't explain how they move, their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so I think that people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what it is. While Obama's answer to the question did not exactly provide any new insight into the phenomena, what's noteworthy is that his response to the question was markedly different from previous media appearances, wherein he'd largely treated it as a joke. This refreshing exchange, in t or sorry, this refreshing change in tone from the former president is in keeping with the overall seriousness which has been afforded the subject over the last few years and, one hopes, a promising sign of things to come when it comes to getting to the bottom of the mystery. Okay, folks, again, the whole point of the paranormal sun is to let you make up your own minds. But to me, if this is not some form of proof that the presidents, and when I say the presidents, I mean all of the former presidents that are alive right now, take their marching orders from someone, I don't know what is, because why would all of a sudden, oh, 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 laugh, 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 and now all of a sudden, let's start talking about it seriously. So, in my humble opinion, he has been told to start changing the narrative as far as how this is discussed and to bring a bit more seriousness to it. Now, that could be for many, many reasons, and there are people out there, Jeff, my friend Jeff in Wisconsin, I know that I'm preaching to the choir with you. You've got your feelings on it and the reasons why. There are many, many reasons why this could be. It could be that there's intelligence agencies working in the background. It could be that this is going to be the next distraction. It could be 100% legit that we're actually going to find out something in June. 
We don't know yet, of course. But this was the article, like I said, that I mentioned in the update about me just taking a bit of a break from social media so I could be prepared for this. Now, in that time, nothing massive has kicked off. And thank you, Dave. My uh, Dave in Missouri, chapter president. Thank you, Dave, for keeping an eye on things while well, I had a few days away from the social media. But yeah, I just find it very interesting the way this has changed all of a sudden. And now he's presenting, taking it more seriously. It's almost as though he got a phone call telling him, you're going to go on and this is what you're going to say and this is how you're going to treat it. And again, I'm not picking on Obama. I would say that every one of the ex-presidents would get the same phone call. It's just that right now you've got Obama's party in charge, right, in in the government in the U.S., and you have got a lot of people that are Democrats that would will listen to Obama, right? So that is the one that you would want to go out there and go and have his talk, either him or Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton's talked about some of this in the past. But yeah, um, nothing surprising to me. And I would say we are, when I say we, the powers that be are trying to control the narrative and are trying to spin this in a certain direction. But again, that's my humble opinion. Now, the next story I've got here, I saw this and I did think, oh, well, that should be on coast to coast. I saw it somewhere else, but it it was on coast to coast as well. And this article is called well, sorry, this article says body of missing man discovered inside Stegosaurus statue in Spain. An unfortunate man in Spain perished after he climbed into a Stegosaurus statue to retrieve his lost cell phone and wound up stuck inside the piece. The unsettling turn of events reportedly came to light over the weekend when a father and son were playing near a sizable paper mache dinosaur. And then there's a photo of it here that sits outside a disused cinema in the municipality of Santa Coloma de Gram Graminet. So, sorry, my Spanish listeners. Uh, you can slap me upside the head for not being able to pronounce that right. What ought to have been a fun outing took a dark turn when the pair spotted something odd inside the statue and promptly phoned the police. When officers arrived on the scene, they quickly determined that the out-of-place object was, in fact, a dead body. Explaining the gruesome situation, cops say that the remains were located in one of the faux dinosaur's legs and that it appeared as if the man, who had been reported missing by his family earlier in the day, had somehow lost his cell phone inside the piece and had been attempting to retrieve it. The unnamed individual's predicament sounded particularly nightmarish. As authorities noted, it looks like he entered the statue headfirst and couldn't get out. Chillingly, cops indicated that the man was probably stuck inside the stegosaurus for a couple of days, leaving one to surmise that his final moments were both terrifying and likely quite maddening since he clearly could not reach his cell phone to call for help. Now, folks, this program is called The Paranormal Sun, not The Gross-Out Sun, but you can only imagine this time of year it's starting to get quite warm. Uh, yeah. You would not want to be around that um, animal with the smell of this guy who had passed away. But folks, if you drop your phone somewhere, 
and it's inaccessible even if the phone is worth a lot of money. Ask yourself, do you want to end up like that guy? When I first read it, the what I read was that this dinosaur was somewhere, and I was thinking it was at a park or something, and I thought, well, surely there was someone he could ask. But if this is true, the way that this story is written is that um, it was the cinema is abandoned, basically. There's no one to ask there, no security guard or anything else. He probably just thought he was going to fish it out. But, of course, it's sad. Somebody's passed away. But the moral of the story is, is your phone really worth your life? Being paper mache, it must have been really strong because I'm thinking surely he would have been able to kick his way out or something, but obviously not. And it is sad that he's passed away. Now on to our next article here. And this one says, woman in England accuses neighbor of unleashing a ghost upon her home. In a weird story out of England, cops were forced to briefly become Ghostbusters after they received a call from a woman who accused her neighbor of sending a sinister spirit to her home. The odd incident reportedly occurred around midnight on Friday in the community of Hayward's Heath when a resident phoned 999, Britain's equivalent of America's 911, with a rather bizarre complaint. According to Darren Taylor of the Mid-Sussex Police, a concerned woman called the emergency number to report that their neighbor had sent a ghost into their house to haunt them. Unfortunately for the woman who believed that she was the target of a supernatural attack, it seems there was little that the police could do about it. Instead, they simply provided some reassuring words, presumably suggesting that her home was not infested by a sinister spirit and offered some words of advice when it comes to what necessitates an emergency call to the police. We get all kinds of weird and wonderful calls into 999, Taylor said about the incident, but people need to be aware that when they call the emergency number, they're blocking people getting through who are in a real emergency. And that's true, of course, my friends. So don't call 911 or 999. Uh, I think here in New Zealand it's 999 as well. I can't remember. I've never had to call it. But uh, yeah, don't call that number. Unless it is a true emergency and ringing up and saying that uh, you've seen Bigfoot or that uh, your uh, your neighbor is sent a ghost in to haunt your house. It's probably not going to end well talking to those dispatchers. Now, my friends, I know that I've got listeners in Australia, so you'll definitely be interested in this. And this one is titled Body of Australia's Mysterious Somerton Man Exhumed for New Forensic Analysis. A decades-old mystery in Australia may be solved as officials in the country have exhumed the body of the Somerton Man in the hopes of identifying him once and for all. The curious case, which is something of a fixture in true crime circles, began back in 1948 when the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Beach in the city of Adelaide. The individual, clad in suit and tie, immediately posed something of a puzzle to investigators at the time as he bore no identification and possessed a suitcase full of clothing that had their labels removed. Additionally, sewn into one of the man's pockets was a scrap of paper with the Farsi words, Taman Shud, meaning it's finished. An exhaustive attempt to identify the man and determine how he had died proved to be futile at the time, giving rise to an array of various theories which have been bandied about for decades ever since. Now, however, new insights into the Somerton man 
may finally come to light as authorities in Australia have exhumed his body with the intention of using modern-day scientific analysis to glean potential clues that had been hidden, so to speak, from investigators in 1948. In a press, com in a press release detailing the exhumation, Dr. Ann Coxon, who is part of the research team set to examine the remains, mused that the technology available to us now is clearly light years ahead of the techniques available when the body was discovered. Specifically, scientists hope to extract DNA from the body, which could, if enough genetic material can be recovered, allow for a genealogical investigation that might ultimately determine who the Somerton man was. Failing that, a, p a partial piece of DNA might allow for researchers to at least figure out where in the world the individual had originated. Although they caution that because the remains were embalmed prior to burial, the genetic material may have been corrupted due to chemicals used in the process. To that end, Coxon stressed that tests of this nature are often highly complex and will take time. However, we will be using every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery. South Australia Attorney General Vicky Chapman sounded similarly optimistic about the chances of closing the case. For more than 70 years, people have speculated who this man was and how he died, she said. It's a story that has captured the imagination of people across the state, and indeed across the world. But I believe that, finally, we may uncover some answers. Considering how DNA technology has proven to be rather wondrous when it comes to solving previously undecipherable crimes and other curious historical oddities, one can certainly be forgiven for having hope that we just might learn the Somerton man's name at long last. Well, folks, I hope that the family or loved ones of that person do find out who it was and that, I mean, it's a long time gone, but um, I do hope that they get to the bottom of it. And uh, I have heard of the Somerton man. When I clicked on the article, I was thinking maybe it was something else. But now that I've, I've read that synopsis of the case, Yes, that is a very famous case out of Australia. Now, we've got one more article here, folks, and this is one that I told you we're going to cover ongoing. And this one is titled, Divers Set to Scour Sunken Nazi Ship for Legendary Lost Amber Room. A team of divers will soon descend upon a sunken Nazi steamer ship that they suspect could contain the legendary Lost Amber Room. So... I read the last article about this, about them thinking that it was in the Carl, in the Karlsruhe, which is a vessel that sunk in the Baltic. The intriguing vessel was discovered off the coast of Poland last autumn, and that's when I read the article, and determined to be a sizable craft known as the Karlsruhe, which had hastily fled East Prussia in 1945 at the chaotic close of World War II. The city from which it departed, Konigsberg, was the last location where the famed amber room, an ornate, set, an ornate set of gold and amber panels, pilfered from a Russian palace by the Nazis, was last seen. These details have led some researchers to suspect that the downship just might be the final resting place of the lost treasure. Their theory was seemingly strengthened when a subsequent dive in December led to the discovery of several chests which sported special rubber seals, indicating that they may have been used to transport precious cargo, and now it would seem that we may get some answers as to what the steamer ship contained, as later this month a team of divers will reportedly visit the vessel for a 10-day-long examination of the site. 
While searches for lost Nazi treasure, specifically the Amber Room, have repeatedly come up short, there is reason to believe that perhaps this time might be different. Giving hope to the expedition is the newly revealed insight that divers previously studying the wreckage actually spotted picture frames and rotting canvases within the downed ship. Another tantalizing detail is that some of the crates sported handles suggesting they may have been originated from museums. The plan for the forthcoming series of dives at the Coral's Rue is to document all the materials found at the site, and should something of value be discovered, the Polish government will then launch their own state-sponsored dive to further investigate. Complicating matters is that the German government, by virtue of its citizens having died on the ship, could declare the site a sea grave, which would put an immediate halt to any examination of the site. As of now, no such stance has been taken, and the dive appears to be set to commence later this month, when it just may solve the mystery of the Amber Room once and for all. Well, folks, again, if you've been listening to this program at all, you'll know that I'm a sucker for lost treasure. And that is a very fascinating tale, something that was created way back in the 1700s as a gift for Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, and was stored in Russia. And then when the Nazis invaded, they basically stole it. They packed up a whole room made out of amber. And then later on, in the 90s, I believe it was, the German government uh, made a gift of recreating the Amber Room, basically. And that is what is now on display. It's basically a recreation. So if they can find the original, it would be fascinating. It's one of those lost treasures that we would think would be never seen again in this world. So we'll see, folks. We will see what that expedition finds. And with that, that is the news of the dam for this episode. Well, that's an excellent segue. The final article of the news of the dam for this week segue into World War II, into Nazis and stolen loot. And now segueing into my interview with Al from Forum Borealis. Like I say, Al has really had some excellent conversations on his program. Everyone from Cliff High, Joseph Farrell, Harry Cooper, Richard Dolan. I mean, he has really had some great people on there and some great interviews and some great conversations. And as I say, I was very humbled to have Al on my program because Forum Borealis is definitely one of the programs that I look up to, I admire, and I really enjoy. So without further ado, I really do hope that you enjoy this episode with the interview with Al. And like I say, don't forget that there will be part two of this next week. Without any further ado, please enjoy this interview, this great conversation, or at least the first half of it with myself and Al from Forum Borealis. And I'm going to go outside and look at a blood red supermoon. Take care, folks, and I will talk to you very soon. Al, can you please tell the listeners a bit about Forum Borealis, how you started, why you cover the topics that you do, and really your background and interest in the field? Yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> I'm not one wouldn't think it because I'm not exactly shy of talking. But I'm not that into essay uh, questions, actually. <laughs> I prefer specifics. So if there's something specific you want to drag out of me that I'm not 
answering now or feel free to to nail that but yeah how it started you said let's see uh, i actually told this to a colleague of yours who's in the same neck of the woods okay are you aware of gordon white of uh, room soup yes yeah so um he was one of the first to interview me and like i told him i never intended to start a podcast i was barely listening to podcasts if i'm being honest and uh, it was just this summer i had some free time at my hand and i've always had private chats with quote-unquote big shots in specific fields and had so many great uh, conversations and i always thought, oh, if that person was here now, or if that person should have listened to this. Uh, I always wanted to, I always felt like it was a waste right, <laughs> being right. the only one present. So eventually it dawned upon me, hmm, what if I call these people, talk with them, and put a mic on the wall? The proverbial fly on the wall, if you like, would be the audience. And I, I, I could upload it. And I was a bit inspired by something called the, the Byte Show and uh, some other f- sound files. Because in that period, I was traveling. I was driving from Oslo to Bergen, which is a solid nine hours drive yeah. o- over the mountain range. The South Mountain Range. And uh, I loved listening to files, coast to coast, whatever, yes. Norwegian stuff. And so... I discovered Byte Show with Joseph Farrell, and uh, yeah, so I did the same thing because it was so completely amateurish in production. I felt even I can do that better, and if that's so <laughs> popular, and you know, if that can suffer being out there, why don't I do it? And I was always annoyed with some hosts not asking the right questions or elaborating on this point, and. Uh, you know, do it yourself, right? right? It's not what they say. Right. So that's what I did. Uh, so people, and then I noticed another bonus: free books. <laughs> <laughs> I love books, man. No, me too. So that became an incentive. Yeah, and and uh, so it was just that simple thing. And then as I went on, all the other duties started to dawn upon me. You know, I had to have a good website, yeah. I had to handle mail, and so many secondary and tertiary things that unrolled, uh, unfolded that um, I had no idea in the beginning. And I'm just, today, I'm suffering big time because maybe 5% of the time I spend on the, if even that, on the show is what we're doing now, is conversations. 90 Probably ninety nine percent is all of the stuff, and I hate it, man. I, yeah. I, I really do. But I love this part, just talking with people. So thank you for the opportunity. No, no. Look, thanks, Al, for agreeing to come on. Like, like I say, um, I'm. I have a very similar journey to you. I've been interested in so many of these topics and the different subjects, like what really went on in World War Two, after the war, even before the war. And all of these possible alternate scenarios, I was very fortunate when I was young. It was one of those school projects that I enjoyed at the time anyway. But you look back at it and you go, that's really amazing. I was, uh, we, we each had to go and interview people about World War II. And at this time in the 80s, obviously, there were still a lot of veterans alive and even housewives and what? children growing hang on, up. Hang on, 
veterans from New Zealand in World no, War No, II? no, no. S- sorry, Al. So I'm originally from the U.S., but yes, oh. yeah, uh, and I've been here for 16 years now. But yes, oh, okay. he- here in New Zealand, uh, a lot of them went away and fought in Egypt, and that was a lot of the contention with Australia oh, right. and New Zealand. Australia, yeah. I remember yeah. that from, of all places, probably embarrassing to admit but from a board game called axis and allies <laughs> I, I played that game as well ironically <laughs> yeah but yeah. It's, it's embarrassing that that's my source to this information but i remember the australians were present and i, I bet there were some new zealanders in that too i can actually hear in your accent that you're you've been there for a while yes yes it, it it's one of those things <laughs> if crazy. i talk to people from the u.s they say oh you know are you canadian or <laughs> or, right. or, yeah but people here you know they still most of the people work out that i'm american some of them might think i'm canadian or something but and i lived all over the u.s to even confuse it more you know it's quite a muddled yeah. <laughs> muddled accent at the end of the day but yeah, speaking uh, of accents um that's another just uh blind dumb luck uh, I, I didn't say the first one. The first one was that we joined YouTube right before the raid gates. Today, awesome. I've said this many times in many interviews, but today it's virtually impossible to break through at YouTube. Unless, yeah. of course, you're you're the mainstream media, which is yeah. deliberate. They are uh, an intentional nursing home for na- mainstream media. But today, trying to... Yeah, you can get some... You, you may get some viral stuff, but probably better... Uh, possibility to get something viral in, let's say, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, something like that, with links to YouTube. Right. YouTube itself won't even let stuff go, go viral. But so that's the first blind dumb block that I got in <laughs> right before they shut the door behind us. So right. I managed to get some listenership in that time. We got up to 35,000 and then it froze. It's been wow. 35,000 for a couple of years now. But We've expanded to podcast platforms. Are you there too, well, by the way? Yeah, that that's where I started. Just again, basically, like I say, my, my journey was, well, let's roll the dice and see how this works out. And that's why I just started with uh, Anchor because I found out it right. was free. And yeah, I, I didn't know anything else really. I looked at YouTube, but honestly, what what really kind of terrified me starting out was I heard all these stories, like you say, of people being demonetized being pulled down for having a photo even if yeah. it was their photo someone could come along and pull them down and you have to you know the the onus is on you to yeah. prove that you have the rights to it and so that's Same why with music <laughs> yeah that that's Videos. why when i started i thought oh i'll come back to that later but early on the last the last thing i wanted to do was be dealing with every other thing pulled down because of that yeah yeah now, most likely what will happen when you upload your stuff, it will just stay there like a backup server or something, but yeah. it won't be too many um, views, unfortunately. Unless, like, for example, if you upload this show, I can share it in my list uh, of interviews, okay. and some people may be generated that way. But like I said, we came in right before they shut the door. So we got, uh, and if you have some, then you can use those to grow further. So it's a little right. bit easier. It's still hard, still hard to be independent media, but a little bit easier than newcomers. Now, the other blind dumb block is back to accents, like we talked about. 
people couldn't tell where I'm from. <clears throat> well, they heard greetings from the north, right? Yes. But they uh, some assumed it was some exotic, natural uh, Anglo accent. But as it worked out, Americans and I don't know the rest of the English-speaking world, but Americans and um, the English—they kind of fancy the accents. They, yeah, <laughs> I did. You said yeah. I should have a, I should have an honorary, uh, what was it, citizenship or something? Because uh, so they kind of find the accent sexy, and it's not that they fancy a Scandinavian accent because there's no such thing. Right. The reason being that the Finns, the Swedes. Right. The Icelanders, the Danes, and the Norwegians have completely different sounds when they talk. Yeah. Uh, but the second reason is that Norwegians have is the Norway is the country with the most diverse accents in okay. the whole of the world, and so you wouldn't just hear a Norwegian and he would sound like me. He would have to be from my part of Norway. So it's that was what I looked out on that my part of uh, the country's melody. An accent is, for some reason, appealing on the airs of Americans and English. And and that kind of helped me, because if I was struggling with a language barrier in addition, I think I would lose or, or, or not reach as many. Right. No, definitely. When I heard you, and, and ironically enough, that's how I found you, was on YouTube. And it probably yeah. would have been around 2016, 2015, somewhere in there. And mm. I just started, I, as as you say back then, YouTube was a different beast. And things would come up in your feed. And when I first saw your one of your conversations, I went, wow. I went and checked all of your other videos. And I went, man, this is just Do you remember which one was the first? Uh, one of the early ones definitely would have been Joseph Farrell and also uh, Peter Lavenda. Uh, yeah, on the Nazi history. Yes, yes. Mm. And then, then I went down that rabbit hole for several weeks and listened to almost all of those. Um, mm. And also Harry, um, sorry, I can't remember his last Cooper. name. Yeah, 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 Harry Cooper. Yeah. What an amazing wealth of knowledge, you know, has he gathered from all of those ex-U-boat uh, sailors and that. Uh, one of our neighbors in where, where I grew up in, uh, it, ironically, in, in the frozen north in northern Idaho, which from a uh, climate and uh, geographical type setting, it's very similar to Scandinavia. Uh, mm -hmm. One of our neighbors, he was ex-Kriegsmarine, uh, ex but as, as you would expect, a lot of people, especially back then, he didn't want to talk much about the war. Uh, mm -hmm. I just remember his name was uh, Schneider, Otto Schneider. And yeah. he was nice enough, but yeah, he didn't he didn't want to talk a whole lot about uh, the war for reasons. <laughs> With that name, reasons. I get it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Right. I agree with you. It's the same with me. Ironically, even though I'm, I am an American. People in the U.S. they often, oh, I really like your accent, and and I like the way that you say things. And and sometimes I have to think, like when I was covering these monoliths, I was asked to cover the monoliths, so I was doing a half hour, forty five minute update every day for a while, and I had to think in my mind as I would say things like. Uh, aluminum because now I say aluminium I've been here so long and then I have to say oh no you have to say aluminum or <laughs> so yeah, that they aluminium is how I would say it yes. who's saying aluminum is that Americans <laughs> yes that's American definitely. it doesn't make sense many of these pronouns for example you have the word hyper and the word bowl 
but it's not hyperbole. Right. For some reason, it's hyperbole. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but well, it's like tire. When I first came here and I saw that they spelled a like a car tire, T Y R E. At first, I laughed, but later I thought, actually, this is genius because it's different than I'm tired out. You know, it's, right. yeah. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so then when I looked at it, uh, then I said, okay, well, actually, this is much. This is <laughs> this makes much more sense than what we do in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But nobody is saying potato. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I'm not saying what... the British are making more sense. I think the problem is with the Anglican language, but uh, that's another matter. No, indeed. Yeah. And even you go from New Zealand to Australia, a lot of people that aren't from here, I'm sure it's the same in Scandinavia. They they say, oh, well, Norway and, and Sweden and Den you're, you're all the same. It, it's the same here with Australia. You go to Australia and you speak and straight away they know you're from New Zealand. <laughs> you're, you're not right. an Aussie. Yeah. So, it's that different, is, is it? Right, right. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite musicians, Brandon Perry. Uh, do you know who that is of Dead Can Dance? Oh, okay, yeah. I wonder if he's from New Zealand. There, there have been some quite famous ones. Um, Neil Finn is from New Zealand. Uh, he was part of Crowded House and uh, I think Talking Heads. There's, there's been oh, uh, Talking Heads too. Yeah, for for such a small mm. country, I'll tell you what. It, New Zealand really does punch above its weight when mm. you, you, yeah when you start looking into some of the people who have done different things. Obviously, everyone knows the main ones like Peter Jackson and and that. But yeah. uh, you know, considering we only just topped five million population uh, during our lockdown in May, I think it was for mm. for such a small base of population. Yeah, New New Zealand does very well on the world stage. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I think you have a lot of uh, farming and that yeah. kind of yeah that kind of built character, but. Yeah, Peter Jackson, you know what he did, right? He took, uh, he made beautiful scenes for the movies based upon the descriptions given by uh, Tolkien. But you know what Tolkien had in mind? He had in mind Norwegian landscape. So we were kind of, I, I can <laughs> see why he would go for New Zealand. It's kind of the same landscape. Right. <laughs> yeah, but we felt kind of snubbed over there. Of course, of cheating. Course. <laughs> but it's easier for him to go down there when he's from there. So yeah, yeah we forgive him. Well, it's it's not so much that way now. But early on, when I first came here in the early two thousands, everyone from the U.S. anytime you would say anything about New Zealand, oh Lord of the Rings, oh Middle Earth, and I tell them, well, right. you know. It's uh, like like you say, uh, Tolkien's uh, idea of Middle Earth uh, actually was not New Zealand per se. It, don't get me wrong; it's beautiful scenery. I love it here. It's just like anywhere we have our problems, but uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it slowly worked its way from only being connected to that. But for a while there, yeah, everybody just thought there were hobbits running wild here, and, and <laughs> you know, orcs. All the stuff we missed. We missed the tourism. You know, Middle Earth is directly from Norse mythology. We call it Midgard. Right, right. Which, which means basically Middle Earth. And uh, uh, the, yeah, this is where we have the hobbits. Right? Yes. In our, in our, we don't call them hobbits, but in our lore, etc. But uh, he could, he could have used, yeah, he used New Zealand, but he could have used Patagonia. Yes. That would have worked. 
some places in Canada, I believe, is pretty similar. Oh, yeah. So there are some places on Earth that share this specific kind of nature. Well, when when I was young, actually, uh, like you, I, I was... It was one of those things. I mean, I, I grew up basically in the middle of nowhere in the country. We lived on mm. a what we call the farm, but it's really more like a lifestyle block. And we were a long way from anything. And obviously, back then, you didn't have all of the internet and being able to access things. So we were very fortunate, though. We had a pretty sizable collection of hand-me-down books. And one of the mm. first ones I really remember reading was a, a book about... Uh, Norwegian specifically tales about uh, trolls and all of the different kinds yeah. of trolls, not yeah. just the ubiquitous troll under the bridge, but you know we're talking yeah. about the king of the mountain and everything else. Wow. And and Al, that's been thirty-five plus years ago, and I still remember that book. I can still remember the illustrations, and yeah, it's just one of those things where it's it's funny how uh, the universe kind of brings us full circle. Here I am talking to you. From Norway, and, and as you the say, biggest troll, the biggest troll from Norway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to checking out your podcast. You have a natural voice for this, that's for sure. Oh, so that helps. Oh, th thank you, Al. It's it's one yeah. of those things when when I first started out. Honestly, I like so many others because of our resonance and our skulls and that. I didn't actually like the sound of my own voice as as much as people might think I do, and that's why I do all of these <laughs> solo shows. But the reality was, again, you know, we're we're a fairly small nation. Most people uh, are out there working and earning their living in that. So uh, basically, I couldn't organize a co-host. Number one, number two, it's just so much easier from a technical standpoint if it's one man show. You just have one mic, you just record one line and everything else. And honest to goodness, when I started this, if you would have told me back then, oh, you will be interviewing people, you'll be just talking with people around the world, I would have thought, man, you're crazy. I, I don't even, <laughs> you know, I can yeah, barely... Who could, see, who could see the podcasting coming anyway, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, um, even Joe Rogan didn't. And uh, when I started, I, I didn't even know about him. Yeah. That we had a pretty similar um, format. And and again, it just goes to show that I wasn't thinking professionally at all. No, same. You know, yeah. who would start a podcast two, three hours long? Everybody sticks <laughs> to 45 minutes or something, right? So uh, we found a niche. There's, a, I believe there's a niche for everyone and everything. Yes. Now that the world has become, if they, if they don't rig the game, if they let it be natural, everyone can tune in. Uh, there's enough people out there, whatever crazy, subcultural, specific niche you adhere to, right. there will be an audience for it. That's the good news. But the the battle is to reach them, to make them yes. know you're here. That's the marketing aspect of it, right? And I'm I'm doing bad at that too. But that's why I'm going coming on shows like this because I believe in the reciprocal effect. How do you say the mutual, the synergy? Yeah, yeah reciprocal. Right. Yep. So, so, um, yeah, so that's that. But, you know, another thing in New Zealand is it's pretty close to Antarctica. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which is where the action is. <laughs> oh, no, look, definitely. And, and that's one of the things I, I haven't really, the, the way that the program has kind of evolved was that very similar to you, Al, 
Uh, that was my whole thing. I didn't start the program to say, oh, well, I'm going to make half-hour episodes or I'm going to make one-hour episodes and commercialize it and monetize it. No, the, the whole idea was, what do I enjoy? What are the tales I enjoy? What are some of the subjects? And again, if some of my episodes might only be 45 minutes because when I did the research, there's not a whole lot about it. And so, uh, you know, I, I did my I did my due diligence and I record the episode. But if I've got a two hour or two plus hour episode and I've got the information and I don't think it's being repetitive, then as you say, similar, I'll do a two or three hour episode, whatever the case may be. And some of these topics, when I when I'll hear other programs discuss it in a half hour or 45 minute soundbite, I'm going, now, what are you doing? You just wetted my whistle. Yeah. You just got me excited. And now over yeah. and done. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, it's it's really fascinating. I, I'll just inject. It's like reading yeah. the back of the book instead of reading <laughs> yeah. the book. You know what yeah. I mean? F f fully agree. And like uh, Form Borealis is, is one of my favorite uh, long, long form programs. And like you, uh, when I was living in Southern California, especially, that's when I really got tuned into Coast to Coast. And I'd, I'd never heard it before, but, uh, you know, that's back when Art Bell was there in the mid-90s. And right. uh, I just loved all of... Uh, the thing I loved about Coast to Coast was every day you would get a completely different subject. You might have UFOs one day. The next day you yeah. might have someone talking about uh, all of these... Um, virologists that were all passing away or dying in accidents right. and and th to me that's really one of the things that opened my mind to not just because so many people they have a favorite topic let's say it's ufos and then all they do is read about ufos watch videos yeah. but the more i started putting the pieces of the puzzle together i started saying wow so much of this is actually connected there are lines running through it yeah like uh for example, uh, something I'm, I'm sure you know because you've been doing this and seem to, you know, I, I know it's something that you also have a lot of uh, passion and learning. But so many people don't realize one of the big things with all of these UFO visitations is that so often people who say they're visited or abducted, they'll say that the, the, the creatures or entities, whatever they are, they bring people that are passed away. You know, they're dead loved ones in that. And... Mm. Yeah, and, and and like I say, if that isn't the perfect example of how some of these things are connected, uh, I just love it how some people will say, for example, okay, I believe that maybe Atlantis existed. Oh, but Bigfoot, that's that's impossible. I try to keep an open mind because what yeah, we're maybe dealing you with. Yeah, draw the line, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It to me, it's very disingenuous for me to say, oh, you're completely <laughs> insane because you believe in. Uh, alternate uh fourth reich you know uh scenarios on the moon yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so i i do look just like anyone i have my personal opinions and <laughs> i i try as best as i can on the program you know i don't want to be the wishy-washy who doesn't ask any questions but i try to leave it up at the end of the day to the listener to be able to make up their own mind yeah. and i might interject Same here yeah, I might interject occasionally to say, you know, they're saying this is swamp gas, folks, really, come on. But in like you say, in general, I try to leave it up to the listener at the end of the day. And, for example, if somebody wanted to come on and talk talk about a subject that I may not personally have a lot of faith in, as long as they were respectful and they wanted to come on mm. and, and have an open... Of course, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about any of these subjects. And like you yeah. say, Antarctica... 
that is something that early on in the piece, when I first heard about it, like so many of these other subjects, Al, I thought, well, yeah, I think that's a bit far-fetched. But when you start digging into what's going on, what's been happening, uh, some of the comments that Dernitz and others in the Nazi hierarchy made about what was going on in Antarctica, the fact that the Germans went down in 1938 with their expedition and basically tried to take Queen Queen Maudland from from you, and uh, mm-hmm. so so many other things that have gone down in Antarctica. More and more, as as I started listening to people like uh, uh, Dr. Farrell and Peter Lavenda, and even uh, Linda Moulton Howe's done some really good. Uh, I've tried to get her on for an Antarctica thing, but she never got back to us. She's so old school. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. She uh, she's had some of those, and again, we we don't necessarily know with any of these witnesses that anyone talks to what is true and what is false, of course. But just the the possibilities to me are astounding, and I've got you look back at the airship um, mystery, you know, in the eighteen hundreds. A lot of people in New Zealand, even, they don't know that they had airships sighted here in the early 1900s. It, mm. it was a worldwide thing. And so many of these, like you say, you know, they're landing in a field and they're getting water and they're saying, oh, where are you going? Oh, we're off to bomb Cuba. These weren't, <laughs> these weren't people going, we're, we're going to Zeta Reticuli. These were people mm. who were saying, we're from Germany or we're, uh, we're we, uh, a scientist created this and, and we're crewmen. So I find it quite fascinating, some of those, uh, out, what some people will say, oh, that's all kookiness. But in all of these things, no matter what, I think in every myth and legend or, or tale like this, at the basis, there's always a grain of truth and oftentimes much more. And like you yeah. say, you know, Antarctica is just, I could, I, I, I haven't got a chance, like I say, to introduce the topic so much on the program yet. I've only just started scratching the surface of, the bell and some of the things that went on after the war. And I just, Al, I only just found out a few weeks ago when I started reading this series of articles about a U-boat that was in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. We were told for years growing up that basically the Japanese, uh, one submarine sailed into Sydney Harbor, they bombed Darwin, and that was it. They They had nothing to do down here. Well, now I found out that it is on record that there were German U-boats sailing up and down the coast of New Zealand. One of them mm. fired torpedoes at a steamer ship, and the only reason nothing happened was that the torpedoes missed, and no one knew they were here until after the war. And it, again, completely new information yeah, it was a to world me. World War. Yeah, yeah. So if they were down here, okay, so they were they were supplying out of the the Japanese bases in Indonesia. So if they were here in New Zealand. It's not that far to go further south to Antarctica. So people who say... But hang on, we know it's not a question of being plausible. It's a matter of documented fact that they sent U-boats to Antarctica. The question isn't that. The question is what on earth for. That's what's debatable. But when it comes to paradigms, you notice one of the slogans we use is paradigm expansion. And the reason is that, like you just uh, were on to now, everybody is biased. Everybody has some stuff that is faith-based and some stuff. Uh, and, and everybody also um, rejects stuff based on uh, 
bias, prejudice, right. emotions, faith. And it's it's just like, okay, I believe in Jehovah, but I think all the other gods are rubbish and uh, superstition. Oh, I believe in uh, Parabrahman, but I think all the other gods are stupid and superstition. Now, that's easy to understand when it comes to religion, right? And uh, atheists make a point out of this. But the reality is that that mechanism, that psychological mechanism, is applying to everyone all over the board, all over the field. Like like the atheists have their own knee-jerk Reject. I mean, they are probably those who rejects most of reality. <laughs> right, right. But as you say, everything is connected to everything, and it has to be, because it's one big reality. If it was compartmentalized, it would certainly be that one of the things were objectively true, and the others were probably subjective realities. But if something is real, then one way or the other, it has to fit with whatever else is real. That's what we could call a unified field theory, right? right. And so you're right. Uh, oh, I'm open to to Loch Ness monster, but I completely reject, uh, uh, let's say, uh, ghosts. Right. Oh, I'm. Uh, it's interesting. I, I've noticed some skeptics. They are open to. There are actually some spiritual people who are skeptics. So they're open to. The, uh, and and even some mainstream skeptics are open to science fiction scenarios that they've learned from science kind of sources like multiple uh, dimension, right. uh, multiple worlds theory, or you know, there's Wormholes. many science fiction theory. Yeah, like Elon Musk. We live in a simulation, yes. so they that's not a stretch for them. But it's a big stretch for them to accept something like a ghost, for example, or or even even something physical and material like, okay, here's a criminal plot. Here's a few people who don't have good intentions, who have uh, planned this behind the scenes and manifested a crime. Oh, no, conspiracy theory! <laughs> but I, I do believe that there's a million versions of me doing anything, right? So, so people are irrational on everything. And the spiritual people, too, they don't accept, like, oh, oh an election can't be rigged. Yeah, but I right. do believe that, you know, uh, an angel can manifest yes. in front of me. So, so everybody is irrational on different things. And I'm not saying this is real and this isn't real. I'm doing like you. I'm entertaining things I think deserve. I have a, I, I would never have on someone a thought was spewing bull. Yeah, but, yeah. But... Even if it's not my favorite cup of tea, I, I'd give it the time of day if I think it's warranted. And I'll not be shy of my own opinions. Yeah. But very often I don't make a final judgment call. I, I try to exercise an open mind in a classical scientific sense of the meaning, meaning that you investigate it. But as long as you don't have all the facts, there's no need to do a final conclusion. Right. Just let let us entertain it and keep it on the shelf until we can either verify or falsify it. If people just did that, the world would be much simpler. But of course, they don't, okay. including in science, notwithstanding in science. So um, that's how it goes. So I let them make up their own minds, like you do. Or only I also offer my perspective if it's there. 
Yeah. And of course, the guest perspective. And that's how we build up bright human beings. No, I, I agree with them. Like I say, say it's, it's a brilliant thing about your program is that you have these conversations and, and you will ask when maybe something isn't clear or maybe you disagree. And, and that's really what I enjoy personally is that you have the conversation. It's not all fluffy, fluffy and petting each other on the back. But at the same time, you stay above the fray. It's and, very cordial. Yes. Very cordial. Yes. And, and, and that's why I've said multiple times when people will say to me, oh, what about why don't you talk about this or that? And I'll say to them, look, very divisive topics like religion, politics. I briefly brush over them, especially when I do my little news segment. So as a homage to Charles Fort, I do a my news segment is always the news of the damned. Uh, as an homage to him <laughs> and sometimes nice. in there there's uh, political stuff like before the election in the US there were witch doctors in Colombia arguing whether Trump was going to win or Biden was going to win and I actually had people saying to me oh you don't I said my my job is not to believe this or that it's to present it to the audience to listen and make up their own mind and of course some of it is lighthearted. that's part of having fun with the show if we're just yeah. going to do serious People pay to go to university to do that. They don't want yeah. to do that in their free time when they're in, enjoying their entertainment. So we will keep our minds open to anything, like you say. And yes, of course, there are some things that are just like, for example, if you said, oh, the world is made of bubble gum. Well, we can very quickly disprove that at least the surface isn't made out of bubble gum. But, <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, some, some of these things that I see. I, I've said on the program, uh, probably the times I get the most passionate is when I'm talking about skeptics versus debunkers. Skeptics, no problem. I've got no problem, as you say, with someone having a skeptical mind, with asking proper questions. But when it's just the debunker and the debunker is going in, in his mind to prove it's wrong because he doesn't agree, that's it, and it's the same. The true believer who goes in and refuses to look at any information because in their mind, oh no, it's it's I already know this is the case. They're fundamentalists. Yeah, and and uh, for example, the case that I just did was it was a UFO sighting in 1959 in in Papua New Guinea, and it was from an Anglican priest named Father Gill, and they saw yeah. this platform which was about 12 meters or 40 feet wide, was hovering over the mission, and he saw four people on the deck of it. They're waving. They're shining the flashlight or the torch at them. They're waving back. And they thought that they were basically doing some type of maintenance on this craft. And people blasted him later, you know, the the, the skeptics, uh, Menzel and, and Philip Klass. And they said, oh, well, you saw this UFO and, and, and why did you go and have dinner? He said, well, it turned up the night before for four hours. It was here again for two or three hours. Nothing's changing. I left people there to keep an eye on it. And he said... To me, it was as ordinary as a Ford car. I expected if they were going to land, that they would land, and some flyers from either Australia or the U.S. would come in and have dinner with us. He goes, I didn't, I didn't think these were people from, uh, as I say, you know, from uh, Zeta Reticuli or somewhere else. Mm. They just looked to be average, ordinary people, and that's exactly what he said. Oh, I thought it was a hovercraft; it was experimental, and uh, you know, as we were saying before, it just goes again. Is this part of a breakaway civilization? Obviously, 1959. Even even now, uh, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any drone that size that you could have four or five people riding on the deck of it. 
And mm. but still, the the attacks that this man got, and it was a bit, of course, what they did back then because it was 1959. Anyone who wasn't a European, they just discounted. They just said, "Oh, your testimony doesn't count because you, you know you're 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 not white, basically, and you're superstitious mm. natives." And then Father Gill and the others, they they basically said, "Oh, well, he had myopia, even though he was wearing his glasses." And uh, Menzel said, "Oh, it was he was seeing the planet Venus, and then it was a squid boat, and then it was his his yeah. uh, hairs in his eyes." And again, if you can prove that, no problem at all. But they're just basically taking pot shots to find something to stick to try and discount yeah. it. But but it's not all, all, only that they are fundamentalists who are closed to alternative scenario. Oh, yeah. More often than not, the leading debunkers have an agenda. Yeah, they're not honest actors. That's the problem. Yeah, and I, it doesn't just go for the skeptical debunking milieus, but there are forces in our world who want to shape the world according to their ideas. And some play fair, like, for example, they may be a philosopher, a politician, an, an idealist, whatever, but some, you know, if they really have problem getting adherence to their shitty ideas, they can play fair. Yeah, and the powers that be are usually in that camp, right? So, yes, influencing our paradigms are very important because paradigms are um, explosive matters, really. So, I, I'm thinking like this: if I can help um, open, I, I, I try to keep one foot in the collective reality, you know, in the Overton window, right, where the accepted uh, discourses are taking place. And I try to keep one foot uh, in the just uh, outlandish, um, subversive, um, original stuff. And yeah. I try to be a bridge so that people do expand their minds because you can never run after, you know, a Jehovah's Witness. You can't, your starting yes. point can't be to discuss that the Gospel of Judas was actually the real. Words of Jesus, right? Oh, you, you Satanist! <laughs> so you have to, you know, meet them midways at their terms. Yes. Which I've done. When I get Jehovah's Witnesses uh, knocking on my door, if I time, I invite them in and discuss with them. Now, another matter is that they flee from here pale skin. <laughs> but but at least I, I uh, receive them and I try to engage them. And so... You know, I know, you know, if I'm getting tired or fed up or I have to, that's when I launch the, the hard uh, ammo. <laughs> but <laughs> in the beginning, I lure them in, I listen, I try to discuss with them on their own terms and make them question their own dogmas. And kind of the same going on here in the show that <clears throat> I get people from all sorts of different topics. And with those guests I also get different supporters or people are interested in that topic and then they encounter other topic I do that may have not dawned upon them was interesting or not heard of and then they because they rarely come in to a show uh, being you know this is the first I ever heard of it yeah usually they come in via a guest because they know the guest of the topic so they're interested already and then they start exploring the other stuff right and <clears throat> their uh, minds are made bigger just because of that. So that's like a secondary effect. But I also try, like I say, to meet in the middle. I try to <clears throat> have a scientific 
scientificish approach. Yeah. And when I do the most lighthearted thing, it's also like you could say a kind of a scheme. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's deliberate that I do some of the populism stuff so that some of my shows get huge numbers so right. that I can afford doing the stuff that will be small, right. niche, boring, and but important to do. You see what I mean? It's not that I don't mean anything with the lighthearted stuff. It's not that I'm compromising my honesty or ethics or anything. It's just that sometimes I lower the bar to have fun and to get more listeners. And sometimes I play hardball and go deep. No, I I, I completely agree and understand. It's the same with me. Like I say, for example, when the whole monolith thing was going down, I saw the photo. And I had a bit of a chuckle about it, you know, and I thought, okay, well, it's, it's slightly interesting. But, but I, I said, <laughs> if this was made of some exotic material from outer space, or it was made of gold, or something like that, maybe my attention would be piqued a bit more. But yeah, then allegedly, had... Buzz Aldrin advocated for it. Do you know the reality of that? Sorry, I didn't catch that up. Buzz Aldrin. No, I I haven't heard that. the The reality is, over the last week and a half or so, I've not. It's not that I haven't cared about it, but I've had so much else on. I've just seen them popping up more and more all over, and I, but I've just kind of uh, turned the turned the background noise up a little bit and tried to focus on other things. But I'll H- definitely hang on, hang on. Is this a new monolith? Oh, these are the class. Oh no, sorry. Yeah. These are the the metal ones that have been you know appearing all over the world. And the initial one in Utah turned up oh, in no, yeah, yeah. I thought we talked uh, talked about the monoliths on the meteorites. Um, right. right, yeah, I've heard, yeah. I've seen that, but did they pop up in Google Maps. Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the first one turned up in Utah, and you you could very quickly look at it and tell. I've worked with enough uh, aluminum or aluminium in my life that I knew yeah. straight away by looking at it what. It, but you know, there's some people, of course. As with any theory, some people are very invested, and they wanted it to yeah. be extraterrestrial or from somewhere else. And then what's happened, of course, in the meanwhile, is that I said, I think the second episode I covered it, folks, you're going to get a wave of them. And sure enough, it's spread like wildfire. I, I know last week there were over 50 had been sighted around the world in different places, different material. But um. But again, when I first heard about it, um, I didn't think too much about it, but then another person asked me to cover it, and another, and another, and another, and as you're saying, uh, with some of the topics you cover, it was the same. Well, the people are asking for it, so I'm going to cover it. Me, mm. myself, again, no offense to anyone who was really into it, but I didn't put a lot of stock into it as far as wanting to get to the bottom of it, because I knew it was human-made, and obviously... in it, it, Yeah. There was some agenda to it. It, it wasn't something like uh, 5G towers or something popping up uh, to be ready for mm. 2021. Uh, I was sure in my mind that it was going to be art, and, and most of them have been proven to be art, and then a lot of them after have been copycats. But again, it's right. just like the UFO topic. I have mm. my own feelings on it. I mean, I read in the 80s, I remember reading things from Frank Edwards, Saucers Are Real, Jacques Vallée, all of his excellent work. And right. I've made up my own opinions on the several different things I think are at play with that many years ago. But UFOs and 
anything related to it are obviously a massive uh, source of curiosity for for people in, at large in the population. So as with you, yeah. I cover a lot of these UFO cases because one, people are interested, and two, many of the cases I cover are the ones that aren't as popular. I don't go. I have like for example, I haven't done Roswell. I haven't done Kecksburg. I haven't done Rendlesham. Because these are the ones everyone has at least heard of, I try to delve into the ones that yeah. people don't necessarily know about and give them a bit of uh, a background to say, hey, if you think it's just the odd case happening here or there, <laughs> this has been happening all over the world for a very long time. Um, like the the famous uh, the the lights in the Norwegian Valley. I can't think of the, the, the name of the valley off the top of my head. But there's the one where they've had the scientists there for years and years. Yeah, um, I was yeah. going to mention that to you. Yeah, because that's uh, that, that 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 reaches a level. It's Hasidaro, and yeah. I'm going to have a show on it. Oh, it's just brilliant. hard to. Yeah, so just so damn hard to get in touch with the professor. But no, that's um, you know the phenomenon cannot be denied. Yeah. If anyone does that, they are at the level of um, the medieval ages. So good luck uh, <laughs> using the word enlightenment in the same sentence oh, yeah. as the other bull you spew out. No, I'd say to those people that it's a matter of fact and it's documented by scientists. But that doesn't really solve anything because we all knew that yeah. the phenomenon itself was real. question is, what is it? Yes. And they're not really any closer to an answer. It's funny because one of them, you know, everybody in Norway obviously knows about this. Yeah. But one of the newspapers, the newspapers, when they write about it, it's always with the angle of nothing to see here for. Of course, yes. Right? Even here. <laughs> so, But the, what they do, they don't reject the phenomenon. They have to up the game. So what they do, like once a year or something, you, you can time your clock after it, that there will be an article saying, now we know what it is. <laughs> Uh, so nothing to see here, folks. Move on. And so like, the last time they did that, it was now we know what it is. It's plasma energy, yes. and blah blah blah. And and really, when you read it, you realized, hey, they're not telling us anything, really. <laughs> but people in general who rely on newspapers, yes, they are not. They are they are so easy to. They just need to be fed their fix. So when they see, oh, now we know what it is. It's plasma. That's it. Yeah. Move on. Then they'd really just replaced one question with another, right? But yeah. they feel informed because they've seen that headline and that yes. explanation from some professor. And so now, yeah, now I can move on. No mystery here. And it's just a bigger mystery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't really give any answers. And that's how, how it works with people, unfortunately. We're... Not necessarily the brightest globe in the cosmos, so we just have to accept that lot and move on. Well, and and the vast majority of people, uh, I, I said I had an episode with uh, another podcast host not long ago, and we, you know, we mm -hmm. talked about we just opened the box and talked about whatever we wanted to, and that was one of the things I said on there. You know, folks, if you think I'm condescending or I'm looking. Look, there were there have been many times in my life where all I've thought about is going to do the job, paying the bills, having a place to live, having food on the table. So we, we all do it at some point in our lives. And I get that people have their minds on their work and their family and everything else. And yeah. 
some people I've actually known have told me one on one, same same as you, Al. I mean, I, I not so much movers and shakers, but just your your general average Joe off the street. They will say to me, "Well, I don't want to think about UFOs, or I don't want to think about the afterlife." And I'll say, "Well, why?" Oh, well, because if I start thinking about that, then there's going to be, uh, as you say, there's going to be other questions. There's going to be other things I start questioning and thinking about, and I, I don't know what to do, and I, I don't know how to address it, and I'm trying to live my life. And so, so many people, I think, just kind of have that mentality that, well, if it's out of the ordinary existence of my life, I don't want to know about it because it's going to open myself up to all of these uncomfortable possibilities or questions of questioning reality, questioning what's really going on with life, with the earth, uh, with our journey, and there could be more. And and like you say, even Musk, okay, well, if the whole universe is a simulation, people don't want to think about it because then they go, well, why am I working? <laughs> why am I paying my bills? Why am I paying my taxes? So they just, uh, I can't, of course, everyone is different, but I think a lot of people, that's why they just have the blinders on and they say, life is just so much easier if I just do my capitalistic job pay my bills and and spend time with my family and watch the the sports on the weekend yeah but you see that's amazing to me because if they because yes i agree most people have that mechanism in their psychology in their psyche as a root causation of keeping keeping them their head firmly sleeping on the pillow but what's amazing to me is when they're aware enough to know that's the root cause. Right. When they can say, when they can actually express into words what you did now. They say, yes, but I don't want nobody because of all the ramifications. That's amazing to me because I've always been a tr hardcore truth seeker. Yeah. To me, it's, it's completely alien to settle with not knowing. And I get that people are different, and, and some do, but it's true uh, when, you know, the, the, that the tr that truth do not is not popular. That's the truth. Yes. And, uh, you know, despite the party speeches and grandiose words uh, being paid co uh, tribute to it, in reality, people really are not that much of a truth seeker maybe when yeah. it comes to their own personal life like did my wife cheat on me uh, is yeah. uh, my son doing drugs yeah. I, I guess they would want to know that but even there no even there people are living in lies oh my, uh, the wife uh, ignores how the father may have done right. sexual um, uh, incest of the daughter for example oh I don't want to face it or whatever Oh, my, 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 my son is a homosexual. I don't want to face it. Right. So, so yeah, even in their personal life, I'm, I, I'm reminded of uh, the propaganda minister Goebbels. Oh, yes. Quote. Yeah, where he says that, I think it was he who said it, that one of the Nazis said it, at least uh, who knew their game, that you have to tell a huge lie to get away with it. Because small, I'm paraphrasing, small lies people do themselves yeah. and they will be onto it yeah so but they couldn't suspect a gigantic lie because they themselves wouldn't be able to do it and then we could you know that's when we are often coming to the topics that you and me are covering right yeah <laughs> it, exactly I, look Al, I, i'm like you uh, 
I, from a young age, my mother always encouraged me to do those things. Like you say, ask the questions, want to know more. Don't just settle for what the news tells you or what uh, the neighbor tells you because they were there. It's fine to take that as part of your information gathering, but don't take it as the be all end all. And I remember from a very young age, as a lot of people from kind of Western countries, I remember sitting in Sunday school and no no offense to any listeners out there who are Mormon. My stepfather was Mormon. I was baptized as a Mormon. I haven't been, I haven't went since I was probably 12. But anyway, I remember sitting in church at probably six or seven and being told, your body is the temple of God. If you defile it, you're going to hell. That's it. And I remember asking myself at six or seven years old, then why am I bothering? Because if I'm already doomed, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> why, why should I be concerned about following any rules moving forward? And mm. being at such a young age, uh, again, for me, it was natural to ask these questions. I remember, uh, I can't remember how old I was, but it would have been quite young like that. I remember riding in the car one time and asking myself, this body, is this our existence? Um, am I more than this body? I feel like I'm more than just this flesh and blood uh, object. Uh, I feel that there's more to it. And again, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not uh, Einstein. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not totally, uh, totally uh, a dumb boy. But at the same time, I'm not one of these theoretical physicists. And, and just what you're saying, Al, I think to myself, if I ask these questions from a young age, most of the people in the world should be, you know, asking these same questions of themselves. And I'm not sure if, like you say, maybe it's just too uncomfortable they're afraid they're going to pull the wrong thread and have to face some hard truths. So they just put the blinkers on, put the head in the sand. I've known many people who have said to me, kind of off to the side, and it, it really makes me laugh. It's it's almost like in those movies that you see and the, the, the conspiracy chat side or whatever, and they'll kind of pull me off to the side and they'll go, oh, yeah, I, I believe in UFOs. I saw one or, or I think that this could have happened. And and you laugh because you think it's 2020, for goodness sakes. And you're not talking about plotting the downfall of the world's government. You're, you're talking about things that are perfectly rational questions. Well, actually, you may be. <laughs> well, well, well I'm, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure the powers that be think that of almost anyone who puts their head up and has a voice anymore. Um, yeah, but I was thinking about the UFO. Um, oh, yes, yes. Ah, like I posted uh, one of the cases that's probably the most famous New Zealand case was called the Kaikoura Lights. And it's a very similar phenomenon to uh, those earth lights or, or whatever the case may be in Norway and other places. Uh, basically, bright globe following a plane. They had it on two sets of radar. They had film documentation of it. They had pilots seeing it, everything else. And that was in 1979. So I was two years old when it happened. Even now, mm -hmm. after all these years, I posted up uh, just a little snippet of it, and I went on TikTok here in New Zealand, and so many people are just going, oh, it's it's been proven it's wrong. And I say to them, well, have you listened to my episode? Oh, no, but you know, you have this video. Say, I said, in the video, I don't say what it is, okay, number one. Number two, if you go and listen to the whole episode, you will see the ridiculousness of the New Zealand Defense Force's contentions at the time. They were saying it was squid boats. Then they were saying mm. it was a cabbage field reflecting uh, radar. 
And then they were saying, oh, well, maybe the pilots were hallucinating or they saw the planet Venus. And on and, and, and it's almost like you say, it's one of those things like you were saying about that yearly article popping up. If we just get people's focus off of it for long enough, it doesn't really matter if it's explained or unexplained. As long as it passes through the news cycle, they'll move on yeah. to other things and we don't have to yeah, worry exactly. about it anymore. It was Colbert. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I heard about it last week, so it's no big deal. But here's the thing. First off, if you are interested in covering uh, rarer UFO cases, Richard Dolan should be a man. Oh, yes. For yes. you to have on, right? But second, um, people should just assume that they are being lied to because, you know, it's weird. It's the same with the press as with academia. It's that... Once upon a time, academia meant the free pursuit of enlightenment, of knowledge, right. of wisdom. It was like, yeah, free thought and, yeah, let's expand our knowledge base. That's not the game anymore. Right. But, and everybody knows that who, who has any experience with modern academia. It's just a factory yeah. to produce um workers with the competence that the machine needs and yeah. uh, there's almost no i mean i guess if you're a billionaire reti or retired or something and you just attend these courses for free but even so it's not because those who work in the system are not there to really find everything is controlled by money and by ideology so but it has to it has to what's the word um the atmosphere, the echo, the aura of this thing, yet still, like, oh, doctor, oh, that means a big deal. Oh, you're do no, doctor just means you didn't have a life for 10 years <laughs> while you were suffering right. through this. So, but it's the same with the media. The media isn't free anymore. The press isn't free, and they're not there to enlighten. I mean, if you want to be enlightened, meditate or read a book or something. Right. You never get any depths from the media. And in fact, they can hardly cover the news anymore, which is supposed to be their prime directive, right? And so, it, whether it's the media, but, but, but the image is still there of all papers, newspapers and yes. TV, they are here to, you know, let us know what's going on. <laughs> no, that would be completely irresponsible in today's society because, because in today's society, the intel uh, agencies around the world, basically, yep. and there's you know behind the scenes considerate concerns, both in science actually and in government. So news isn't there to enlighten us of anything. So if there's something that's out, I mean, you could probably trust the news to some extent if it's something going on within their, uh, should one say, uh, their overton window. But even there, you can't trust it anymore due to um, completely. I mean, there's no investigative journalists anymore, right. and now they are filling the. Especially America's worst, of course, but yep. America's usually just five to ten years ahead of the rest of the world, right? Now they directly employ uh, intel agents as news actors, not news anchors, but news actors, and uh, other, you know, biased and and people with agenda. Yeah. Um, so. You could have the the thing like the Russia Gate going on with no repercussion, with no yeah. Yeah. Uh, reckoning, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So you should assume it. But then you could also ask, okay, so there's an overt 
lying to us, especially about things that are outside the overtime window. But to what extent are the people who do this thing, to what extent are they deliberately lying and to what extent are they just in for the ride? And are, are there conspiracies, if you want to use that word, or, or, or are there people plotting who are, are at a deeper level than even uh, the powers that be? Right. Uh, that's an interesting question because the, the the UFOs, for example, could fit in. Uh, I mean, there's an aspect of the UFOs where you know they don't even know. Yeah. So why why listen to them? And not just UFOs. You could talk about nine eleven or, or like we've covered right the Borman Brotherhood, yes. as some yes. call it, the Brown uh, Eminence. Quote, yeah, the the Brown Eminence. I read an interesting quote to you. Uh, a listener sent me this in. Um, Dr. Tatiana Koraigina uh, is a senior research fellow for the Institute of Macroeconomic Research under the Russian Ministry of Economic Development and reportedly close to President Putin's inner circle. She said the 9-11 attacks were not the work of 19 terrorists but a group of extremely powerful private persons seeking to reshape the world. This group, she added, has assets assets of about three hundred million uh, three hundred trillion dollars. Which yeah, that's a lot. Which it will use to legitimize its power and create a new you know, uh, the black uh, the the white economy I think is I think it's fifty trillion. Yeah. Yeah. So three hundred trillion is a lot. Now Farrell says in his book Hidden finance, rogue networks, and secret sorcery, a fascist international 9-11 and penetrated operations. He says, the indications of a third level and that 9-11 was an up within an up within an up. There are find a number of key indicators that the rogue network itself in, itself had been penetrated by yet another network. And this is how it works in the Intel game, you know, a double yeah. spy, triple spy which we have been calling Level 3 and which Prime Minister Blair referred to as the Global Network. The statements of Dr. Koryagana, the Russian economist and a Roman member of President Putin's inner circle, also testified to the existence of a global rogue network above and beyond that of Al-Qaeda was behind the attacks and that additionally it had access to a financial war chest of approximately $300 trillion. And finally, the last quote... Uh, is also from a book of Dr. Farrell's statement in the, implies that some other group of people was actually involved in the planning and execution of the attack. There are other indications from R- Russia sources. This group, she, yeah, um, uh, yeah, this group, she added, has assets of about 300 trillion, which they will use to legitimize its power and create a new world government. Um, in Pravda, July 12, 2001, and yet another prediction of dire events that will befall the United States in August 2001. In other words, Russia had precise knowledge of Mr. Blair's unnamed global coup and precise financial knowledge of its assets. This implies something equally important for our analysis, for it means that not only did Russia know of a deeper layer than simply a rogue element within the American national security state. It also strongly suggests the possibility that Mr. Putin's 
uh, government communicated this information to the Bush administration prior to the 9-11 attacks. Given that there is evidence suggesting some involvement of the Bush administration in the planning of the drills behind which mirror aspects of the 9-11 attacks, we posit that the Russian intelligence information may in part be behind the realization on the part of the Bush administration that the coup attempt was in progress and that it had to be heated off. The allegations of Dr. Koryagogina also imply something else and equally significant, namely that the global coup must have had detailed inside financial knowledge and connections, which the Russians also knew. So, when we are talking this level of reality, of course most people back off, not just because they can't handle the information, but also that they have no access to. Right. They wouldn't even, this would be like chasing after a fundamentalist Christian about the latest knowledge of the Gospel of Judas, right? Right. You can't start at that end, the deep end. Uh, but when you go all the way down the rabbit hole, and if you keep scientific principles and rational principles, because that's completely possible to do. I mean, there were, you can be rational and scientific a thousand years from now, but the discourse and the paradigm will be so deep down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you can go back a thousand years right. and you can still be a rational scientific person. And again, the paradigm will be true. So it's not the paradigm that decides what's really potentially real or not. It's the seal you put into, the seallessness you put into trying to keep it objective right, and right. beside yourself because yourself is the big problem. And like even Pythagoras warned against, you have to, and, and uh, uh, Gurdjieff and all these people, they said you have to, if you, if you can pass it through the filter of yourself, of your yes. ego, then you could probably get somewhere. But we are our worst, our own worst enemies, our own worst gatekeepers, basically. No, I, look, that, those are some fascinating quotes. I, I've heard kind of paraphrased or boiled down versions of those. So thank you, Al, for uh, reading those because, again, l like you say, it's we. I already went over this a bit ago, but it's the same sort of thing. Uh, like you said, you you can't just start in the deep end with people, because yeah. people who may never have thought about a Fourth Reich or continuance of the Nazi International or anything like that, you immediately start talking about uh, weaponizing the Bell and base in Antarctica and. Uh, things like that and the possibility that Roswell was actually a German craft and they yeah. just immediately you've lost them. So yeah. you might like, as well talk about Nazis <laughs> on the moon and the whole world. Yes. Mm. And and that I mean I've I've had these conversations with some really intelligent people before where they they just don't they they think that what you say can't be backed up and like I was mentioning Operation Paperclip and this guy was uh, probably 20 years older than me at the time. This is when I lived in Southern California. And he said to me, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. I said to him, this is a matter of documented records. I said, do you know where Werner von Braun came from? Do you know where, um, I think it was uh, uh, Wolf or, or Tank, the one who was leading NASA? I said, do you know where this man came from? And I told him, I, I said, look. And this was obviously the days before the internet, so you couldn't just hop on your phone right. and say, okay, he can know. be forgiven now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, I said to him, I, I, I told him, look, all I'm saying is you have to keep an open mind that 
anyone in a, in a government, it generally in this day and age, if it's going to take this or that to remain in power and remain uh, keeping things, as you say, status quo, at least keeping the curtain from letting everyone know what's going on in the background, yeah. they're, they're going to do it. And, you know, there's obviously the very famous uh, deathbed confession quote of Werner von Braun talking about first they're going to stage the uh, communism versus capitalism, then it's going to be global terrorism, and then the last card will be an alien invasion, all to mine more money into the military-industrial complex to remove it from the white economy, as you say, into the black economy. And 9-11, I was quite young when that happened. I was living in Southern California. But I'll tell you, Al, even back then, I remember as soon as they rushed through that Patriot Act, just before the holidays, you're going, mm. okay, what is in that? Because even the senators were complaining, we haven't had a chance to read this. And they're just being told, just pass it. <laughs> it's it's a matter of national security. You must pass it. Yeah. Yeah. There, and there was uh, something special happened. There was an uh, atmosphere of fear. Yes. Yes. Uh, for at least five years uh, where you couldn't question the authorities. Right. It was like probably how it would be to live under a real fascist uh, regime. There was this, you know... Everybody was uh, on the bandwagon of hysteria, and yeah. it was mob mentality. And goddamn, being a Muslim in America back yeah. then must have been terrible. You know, the Sikhs, nothing to do with yeah. Muslims. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were being, uh, you know, oh, a guy with beard and turban, let's yeah. burn him. So, um, and uh, people were afraid of Bush. The, go uh, the, the news media, uh, everybody was, uh, the Bush regime was, and people criticize. The Trump regime. They have no idea how it was under the Bush regime. The Bush regime yeah. is still the worst we've got since the Second World War, or maybe ever, in terms of what they actually did, in terms of policies. I'm not saying Obama's was much better. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. a watered-down, yeah. prettier face on the same kind <laughs> of... But it's really, it was really a heavy regime. And, you know, it wasn't okay to oppose or start thinking critical. Even oh, the no. conspiracy theorists were shutting up. Yes. Until yes. about four years after. And several things conflated at the same time. There was a new um, election and they had this Howard, um, what's his name again? Howard, uh, a doctor for the Democrat. I forgot his name. Now he's a mainstream Democrat. But back then he was... Pretty much uh, putting a name on the anger against the Bush regime and okay. dared to speak very freely. And at the same time, you had people testifying in the Senate, like um, uh, British dissident uh, George Galloway, of course. Okay. George Galloway. And there was others, you know, Alex Jones started yes. to go critically yes. into. And eventually people felt, oh, okay. It's okay again. Yeah, now it's safe. Critical. <laughs> yeah, now it's safe. So, uh, but for a while there, the world was put off, and now they had, they had the information about how to use the shock doctrine yeah. to shape 